Ask yourself, what would you do to survive? J.C. Dugard, A Stolen Life. File and Vice contains graphic and or explicit content, which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Violent Vice, episode 53. My name is Audie Griffith. And I'm John John. Hello. Hello. If you guys could do us a favor, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. And check out our merch store. Our pens came in. They're up and at them. And, mm-hmm. um, we got t-shirts. We got tank tops. We got sweatshirts. And now we have pins. We do have pins. And yeah, they're, they're pretty cool. So go oh, check yeah. them out, violinvice.bigcartel.com. So yeah. All right. So from today's quote, the author is who we are talking about, J.C. Lee Dugard. She is from South Lake Tahoe. So we are heading back to the Reno, South Lake Tahoe area again today. Okay. Lake Tahoe. This is the episode we did where there's possibly just a graveyard of bodies on the bottom. Yep. Mm. We're not going too in-depth about Lake Tahoe. This just happened in the town of South Lake Tahoe. That's where, like, all the uh, casinos and, like, mm. ski resort and shops are and everything. Okay, the touristy part of Tahoe. Yeah. At the time, it wasn't well, as touristy, but it, it definitely grew since then. All right. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, so again, this is J.C. Lee Dugard. Some people say Dugard, but in interviews, uh, it was Dugard. So we're going with that pronunciation. Ooh, all right. So I do want to give a warning um, just for our listeners. I know that there's one in our credits and everything. This guy kind of gets into it. Um, J.C. Lee Dugard, she has two books, one called The Stolen Life and one called Freedom, where hmm. she gets into more detail. We're going to kind of do like a light, well, not... Synopsis type stuff? Hell, it's not even that really that light because everything's kind of heavy, but we're we're going to try to give her justice in this and kind of mm-hmm. go from there. But definitely trigger warning for our listeners and uh, just kind of proceed at your own risk on what you can handle. Okay, so, yeah, you've been warned, and now I've been warned. Now, if you're sticking with us, we're in this together. I believe in you. Do you believe in me? I hope so. Let's go. Yeah, so we're actually heading back to a time before both Jaja and I were born. Uh, June 10th, 1991 is when this took place, and kind of what happened and we'll get into everything else, is on June 10th, 1991, Carl Proben was dropping his stepdaughter, J.C. Lee Dugard, off to catch the school bus when he heard her scream. They were in South Lake Tahoe, and although Proben tried to reach her on his bicycle, she was pulled into a strange gray sedan and disappeared. Some of Dugard's classmates witnessed this abduction as well. A man and a woman were seen, and the car was thought to be a 1980 gray two-torn Ford or Mercury sedan. They used a stun gun to incapacitate Dugard. 
JC was 11 years old at the time, and she was wearing her favorite pink, pink outfit to school for a field trip. So, again, just kind of going into it, this is going to be a trigger warning. It does involve children. It does involve sexual assault and rape and everything. So, just, again, proceed with caution. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right. So, who were the Dugards? J.C. Dugard's biological father, Ken Slayton, was not involved in her life, nor in the investigation or the kidnapping following, uh, the kidnapping case following that. When Dugard was seven, her mother, Terry, married a carpenter contractor named Carl Proben and gave birth to Dugard's half-sister, Shana, in 1989. And although Dugard was close to her mother and sister, she was never really that close to Proben. And in September 1990, Dugard's family moved from Arcadia, California, to Los Angeles County to Myers, a rural town south of South Lake Tahoe. So this is just right outside of South Lake Tahoe because they thought this was a safer community. So kind of like a suburb area of South Lake Tahoe. So search efforts. Within hours of Dugard's disappearance, local and national media coverage uh, converged on South Lake Tahoe to cover the story. Within days, dozens of local volunteers assisted in the search effort, which involved nearly every resource within the community. Within weeks, tens of thousands of flyers, posters were mailed to businesses throughout the United States. Since Dugard's favorite color was pink, the town was blanketed in pink ribbons as a constant reminder of her disappearance and as a demonstration of support for her family by the community. Terry Proben founded a group called JC's Hope, which directed the volunteer and fundraising efforts. Cassette tapes of the song JC's Song, along with t-shirts, sweatshirts, and buttons were sold to raise money for poster materials, postage, printing, and related expenses for her search and rescue. Child Quest International and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children were involved in the effort as well. A reward was offered, which was noted on the posters and flyers. The kidnapping case attracted nationwide attention and was featured on the June 14, 1991 episode of the Fox television show America's Most Wanted. The ensuing months and years were a continuous effort of child safety awareness, fundraising events, and candlelight vigils marking Dugard's disappearance, keeping her story in the public eye and awareness. So some initial suspects in the case included Proven, her stepdad, as well as Ken Slayton, her biological father. Though they did not know each other, the biological father and Dugard, and Slayton had only had a brief relationship with Dugard's mother in 1979, not knowing that he had a child with that relationship. So they interviewed the bio dad as well as the stepdad. Okay. Um, So, like... Okay, they're searching rescuing, couldn't find, doing all these different things to fund posters and other search efforts, was on America's Most Wanted type of stuff. Yep. First look was dad and stepdad. Yep. Dad probably found out he had a daughter at this point. Yep. Stepdad? Well... Get into it a little bit. Okay. So Proven, which is the stepdad, he took and passed several polygraph tests, and Slayton was also cleared of any suspicion, so they were knocked off the suspect list. Nonetheless, the kidnapping led to a breakup of Terry and Proven's marriage. Um, They usually say tragic events either bring people closer together or split them apart, either Mm -hmm. on one, one 
one direction fully. Like, either you make it together and you grow from it or you don't. Mm-hmm. So, it, sadly, it was the latter. So, let's get into who was driving the car and background on the kidnappers. Although the kidnappers wouldn't be identified for approximately 18 years after the initial kidnapping, the couple driving the car were Philip and Nancy Garetto. This was not Philip's, the husband's, first crime. At the time of the kidnapping, he was on parole for the rape that occurred in 1976. And the 1976 rape included Garetto knocked on Katie Calloway Halt. Paul's door and asked her for a ride. She drove a short distance before he grabbed her. At that point, he handcuffed her, taped her mouth, and tied her to a storage warehouse in Reno, Nevada. Hall reported that he was talkative during the car ride. He talked a lot about Jesus and talked about his first wife, about how he was happily married, and the main reason he was doing this was because of a sexual urge, that he really enjoyed it, and he had done it twice before, the woman had said. She was sexually assaulted continuously over the course of six hours. The crime ended when a police officer noticed the car with California tags outside the storage unit, which he could see a light coming from. Although Garetto begged the victim to cooperate, she ran outside undressed and repeatedly asked the officer for help. Garetto attempted to explain that Hall was his girlfriend and that they were just having a good time. He was then arrested for kidnapping and rape. The U.S. government sued the kidnapping charge while Nevada handled while Nevada handled the rape. So it was across jurisdiction, meaning that she was kidnapped from California mm-hmm. and brought to Nevada. Yeah, that would make things a little more complicated. Alright, I'm more just following. This guy is not the stepdad, not the actual dad, just a random guy that they saw in the car that was driving the girl. Yep, this is just the random kidnapping. JC Lou Lee Dugard's kidnapping was one, that ten percent uh, chance oh, of just, just like of a stranger doing it. Of a stranger doing it. Okay. Yeah. After serving ten years in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas, where he met and married his current wife Nancy, Garetto was granted federal parole and moved to Northern Nevada Correctional Center in Carson City. So originally. What I saw from the ABC coverage of this case was that he was sentenced to 50 years but only served 10. And then Nevada, he was sentenced to 5 to life. And we'll get into Mm -hmm. how he did. So this was like literally an eighth of his sentence. Okay. Or a fifth. And like it was was more like he served some there and then he would serve some in Nevada is kind of what it it sounds like. So it was two jurisdictions. So he was charged for the rape in Nevada and charged for the kidnapping that occurred in California. Oh, okay. So each crime took its place. So again, this was, I said an eighth earlier, but it's a fifth of the sentence he served. So like, that's kind of ridiculous. And, and this was, uh, uh, an additional offense to what he had already been charged with. So this is the mm-hmm. second time being charged with rape. Mm-hmm. So after he was moved to the Northern Nevada Correctional Center in Carson City, parole records released by the Nevada Board of Parole Commissioners reveal that commissioners denied parole to Garetto at least three times, February 1st, 1986, April 1st, 1986, and February 1st, 1988. However, on August 1st, 1988, 
Two commissioners granted Guerrero parole from the Nevada prison with the conditions that he complete a substance abuse treatment program, receive mental health counseling, remain in California, and maintain steady employment, undergo drug testing, and be subject to search and seizures randomly. Also released was a risk assessment sheet that calculated how much time Guerrero should serve based on his based on eight questions, including whether he had prior convictions. He had two or more previous convictions that were not detailed at this point, and if a weapon was used during the commission of the crime, one, however, was not. He would, uh, and if he was over 18 when he committed the offense, the numbers are then added up, and Guerrero was calculated to be a moderate risk who should serve about 10.5 years in prison. He served 11 and was released to his mother's home on, in Antioch on August 26th, 1988. So again, 11 out of the 50 years charged. And this was because the or the parole board granted him parole early. Because mm-hmm. he was a quote-unquote model prisoner. But still a high risk. Yeah. Like to put moderate risk, which means like he's not a risk while in prison. Like, a, in terms of, like, riskiness in general. But there's a decent chance he would be out of prison. So, I guess... I don't know. I feel like... With the multiple ones, then I would say that he would have to be under house arrest for some time. But that's my opinion. So, in the ABC documentary, he had, like, an electric, uh, electric monitor device that showed him... Uh, where he was, and it like pinpointed him in his house as well as his yard. However, we'll get to how much how messed up it was on the random searches and whatnot, and how many times JC could have been rescued. But they just didn't check the backyard mm-hmm. where he was spending most of his time. Um, I feel so bad for JC because there's so many ways that the government failed in yeah. doing this. So, kind of getting back to JC. Now, this wasn't covered in the article, but on the ABC documentary that I watched, she described that she was in and out of consciousness while after being tasered and brought into the car. The wife was the one that kind of pinned her down during the car ride, and she was still in her pink outfit at this point. Uh, the one, one of the conversations she remembers them having were that Philip told Nancy that he couldn't believe they got away with it. They were laughing, and Nancy was the one on JC's back, pinning her down. Again, she kept going in and out of consciousness at this point. Upon arriving at the Guerrero's home in the unincorporated island of Antioch, the Guerrero's took Dugard, undressed her, and then wrapped her head in a blanket, and they carried her behind their house, where they had constructed a series of dilapidated tents and sheds. Goretto was placed Dugard inside a tiny shed that had been soundproofed for his mm. quote-unquote recording. It's G-A-R-R-I-D-O. So okay, I'd to, say Garrido. To put it better, I'm going to just switch the names to Philip and Nancy from now on. Okay. Just because my pronunciation is bad. That's okay. But, so, in the car... Did they, they went back to California? Yeah, they lived uh, approximately okay. two hours away from South Lake Tahoe. So, he tasers this girl, his wife holds her down, they get out of there, they're freaking out that they actually pulled it off, and then they just 
shove this girl in the back of a shed that's like run down and stuff? Yeah, it's a dilapidated shed that he's soundproof for his quote unquote music recording. Oh my god. Yeah. Um. So Philip had placed Dugard inside a tiny shed that had been soundproof. Dugard later stated in her memoir in an interview with ABC News that upon arrival, Philip handcuffed her and left her naked in the shed, with which he bolted then shut, warning her that he trained Doberman pinchers outside the shed and they would attack her if she tried to escape. Right after the abduction, Philip forced Dugard to shower with him, which was the first time she had ever been exposed to an unclothed man. Again, she's like only 11 at this time. That's terrible. Yep. During her first week in captivity, JC remained in handcuffs, her only human contact being with Philip Guerrero, who sometimes brought her fast food and talked to her. Now, again, I know we're already there, but just another trigger warning, okay? He provided a bucket for her to use to relieve herself, and a week after the kidnapping, Philip raped the still handcuffed Dugard for the first time. He continued to rape her frequently, doing so at least once a week for the first three years of her captivity. So, she had also kind of stated, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the shed and everything from her interview. She was handcuffed with hands behind her back, couldn't really use her hands for that first week. There is a window with bars on it that had a towel over it as well. She removed the towel with her teeth and she could just see the moon and she heard trains and like planes and she just wanted to try to take in her surroundings. So like if she were to get rescued to like know where she was. So she was trying to get the wherewithal from her location. Like she was actually making some efforts to make as much use of her time away from Philip to like, use it whatever she could against it yeah just again to try to know where she was yeah oh my god and you said for the first three years yep we'll get to it oh my god so philip at one point provided dugard with a television but she could not watch the news and remained unaware of the publicized search for her Almost a month and a half after the kidnapping, by Dugard's recollection, Philip moved her to a larger room next door, where she was then handcuffed to a bed. He explained that the demon angels let him take her, and that this would help him with his sexual problems because society had ignored him. He went on a methamphetamine binges called runs, during which he would make Dugard put on makeup and dress her up to spend time with her while cutting out figures from pornographic magazines and gluing them to child bodies, according to Dugard. Uh, Philip made her listen to the voices as well, and he said he could hear them from the walls, often professed a belief that he was a chosen servant of God. These benches would end with Philip sobbing and apologizing to Dugard, alternating with threats to sell her to people who would put her in a cage. So he was emotionally manipulating her constantly, like trying to get Dugard to comfort him as well as threatening Dugard constantly. Mm -hmm. And I mean, she's 11. She's 11. Yeah. And it doesn't sound, well, with the methamphetamine stuff, that, I mean, fully unstable dude. 
Yep. She said, I believe she made a metaphor to a house of cards that, you know, as easily as it could be built up, it could blow over in a matter of seconds just from, like, a wind or breathing on it. Yeah, whereas it's like, get them finally calmed down and then one slight movement or a look and it's suddenly right back to where it started type stuff. Just like that level of unhinged. Yep. And at this point, Philip was the only one in contact with JC, even though his wife Nancy helped with the kidnapping. But So weird. Yeah. So weird. But we'll get into it because she's just as guilty. So seven months into her captivity, Philip introduced Stugard to his wife Nancy, who brought the child a stuffed animal and chocolate milk and engaged in the same tearful apologies to her. Though Duger craved the women's approval at the time, in a 2011 ABC News interview, she stated that Nancy was just as manipulative as Philip. Duger related that Nancy alternated between a motherly concern and coldness and cruelty, expressing her jealousy of Duger, whom she regarded as the one to blame for her predicament of Philip sexually assaulting her. Where, like, she was, like, jealous of JC. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yep. She characterized Nancy, who worked as a nursing home aide, as evil and twisted. When Philip returned to prison for failing a drug, ta- drug test, Nancy replaced her husband as Duger's jailer. Uh, both the Gurettos manipulated Duger further by presenting her on two occasions with kittens that would later mysteriously vanish. When Philip discovered that she was signing her real name in a journal that she kept about the kittens, she was forced to tear out the page with her name on it, and that would be the last time she would be permitted to say or write her name until her captivity ended 18 years later. She was never allowed to see a doctor or a dentist during this time. Their neighbor, Patrick McQuad, told San Jose Mercury News that as a child, he recalled meeting JC through a fence in the Gretto's yard soon after the kidnapping. He said that she identified herself by the name JC and that when asked if she lived there or was just visiting, she answered that she lived there. At that point, Coretto came out and took her back indoors. He eventually built an eight-foot-tall fence around the backyard and set up a tent for Dugard, the first time that she was allowed to walk outside since her kidnapping. Eventually, the couple made her change her name. At that point, she chose to go by Alyssa. So they not only, like, were raping her and torturing her and everything they made her change her name to like just change everything about herself just like fully removed her from her previous life as much as possible so once whatever happened happened they were done there was nothing for her to go back to pretty much they they tried to you know just control every aspect of her life yeah it's just i don't know what kind of crazy this is this is ridiculous yep so, again, this is a heavy, heavy episode, so I'm sorry, guys. But it deserves coverage, it deserves notoriety, and it, you know, learning JC's story, like, the thing is here to never give up hope, bring child awareness, make sure your children, you know, know that they say no, and um, just kind of give a w- more, like, help get her story out there. So, we're going to get into pregnancy and children. After almost three years into her captivity, the Gerettos began to allow Dugard freedom from her handcuffs for periods of time, though they kept her locked and bolted in the room. On Easter Sunday of 1994, they gave her cooked food for the first time. The couple informed Dugard that they believed that she was pregnant. Dugard, 
was age 13 at the time, had learned the link between sex and pregnancy from television. Deard watched television programs on childbirth and preparation for the birth of her first daughter, which occurred when Deard was age 14 on August 18, 1994. After the birth of her first daughter, Philip raped Deard less frequently, though he would nonetheless do so when he had taken drugs. The last time Philip raped Deard was the day her second daughter was conceived. Her second daughter was born when Deard was 17 on November 13, 1997. Duger take care, took care of her daughters using the information learned from television and worked to protect them from Philip, who continued his enraged rants and lectures. Duger coped with her continued captivity by planting flowers in a garden and homeschooling her daughters. At one point, Philip informed Duger that to pacify his wife, Duger and her daughters were to address Nancy as their mother and that she was to teach her daughters that she, Duger, was the, their older sister instead. When Dugard and her daughters were eventually allowed to come into contact with other people, the, this fiction was continued more. Philip operated a print shop where Dugard acted as a graphic artist. Ben Doghill, a customer of Philip's printing business, claimed that he met and spoke by telephone with Dugard and that she did excellent work. During this time, Dugard had access to the business phone and email account. Another customer indicated that she never hinted to him or her uh, to him about her childhood abduction or her true identity. Witnesses stated Dugard was seen in in the Goretto's household and sometimes answered the front door to talk to people, but never stated that there was a problem or attempted to leave. While the family kept to themselves, the girls were sometimes seen playing in the secondary backyard behind the house, where the where Dugard's living quarters are thought to have been located. Uh, again, a tent in the back. The private area of the backyard included sheds, one of which was used as a recording studio in which Philip recorded himself singing religious theme and romantic country songs, two homemade tents, and what was described as a camping-style shower and toilet. Okay, quick recap yes. of everything with that. She had her first daughter when she was 13, a second daughter when she was 17, was raising them on her own, was forced to tell the daughters that Nancy, the the woman who kidnapped JC, was their mom, and she was just a sister. Yep. Due to Nancy's, like, jealousy and everything. Yeah. And then she began working at a printing shop? Yep, to kind of pacify the household, so to speak. Like, to make some more money for the house and also reduce suspicion, maybe? Uh, I, I believe just to make more money for the household at this point. I know that, I, again, she talks about this in her book. She was threatened constantly. Her daughters were threatened at this point. She was just doing everything she could to survive at this point. Uh-huh. So. Okay. She, again, she didn't want to set off Philip or Nancy and, yeah, again, just cause... doing stuff to survive and make sure that she and her daughters weren't punished. Because mm. okay. now now she has two kids to protect, too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Because, um, again, her children were... Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they were ever abused, but they were verbally threatened. Yeah. So, from the age of 11 to 18, is it now? 
Uh, 17 was when she had her second daughter. Okay. Yep. So, how was she found? In August 24th of 2009, Philip went to Berkeley's campus to discuss a permit process to speak at the school. He wanted to talk about schizophrenia and his methods of controlling his mental illness to distribute religious flyers. The special events manager at the school, Lisa Campbell, said she noted he was clearly unstable and that her mother's intuition went off when J.C.'s 15-year-old daughter was staring straight up into the air during the exchange. Accordingly, the special events manager stalled him and asked him to return the next day, which he did. This gave, gave Campbell further opportunity to observe the children and knew in her gut that something was seriously wrong with his daughters. After this, she had the officer run a background check where she found out that Philip was a sex offender. Ultimately, there is not a legal reason to keep the children from going home with Philip, but Campbell knew she had to do something, so she called Philip's parole officer and stated that she was concerned about his two quote-unquote daughters. The parole officer responded that Philip did not have children and required Philip to report to the parole office the next day. Initially, JC denied her identity and that she was kidnapped, but after Philip admitted he kidnapped her and fathered the children, she then revealed her true identity. JC was then reunited with her mother that very next day. So, again, this was just from UC Ber- Berkeley's uh, guard. Lisa, yeah, Lisa Campbell yep. is just like... okay. Special so, events manager Lisa Campbell. She Yeah, she was the one that broke this case wide open. Okay, so Philip just shows up wanting to hand out flyers and talk about his schizophrenia while he brought his daughters with? So he was looking to speak at the school about mental health and his schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. and yes, he brought his daughters with. So this was just, again, he's... She just got like a vibe that like something's off about the daughters and... Like, he's talking about having schizophrenia. He seems unstable. He brought his kids. Yep. What is going on? Yep. So she required him to come back the next day to observe the kids more. And then that's mm-hmm. when she reported she everything. basically Googled him to figure out who is this guy? Why does he want to do this? He's that. And then she was just kind of just doing a basic CPS. I don't know if these kids are okay or not. Maybe it's best to send somebody to check. And they're just like, what kids? He doesn't have kids. Yeah. Well, like, she she found out that he was a sex offender and then found his parole officer and then called him. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's how it kind of broke open. And the thing that pisses me off, and I'm sure JC too, um, so they talk about this in the ABC News coverage uh, documentary. I believe the one that was five years ago. They just did a new one after the 30th anniversary um, of her kidnapping last year in uh, 2021. But the five year, five mm-hmm. years ago one, she talked about how he had 66 checks where parolee, or parole officers came and like swept the house and they never once checked the backyard where they would have found her during the time that she was kidnapped. 66 times. And, again, he had the ankle monitoring bracelet, and so they saw that most of his time was spent in the backyard, and they never did anything mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, uh, that's got to be really f- frustrating. Yeah. Very frustrating. 
They also talked about, uh, talked to, or tried to get comments from the parolee board and everything on why he was let out so early after being a second time offender, if not a third time offender, um, as well. Mm-hmm. And like just all the, basically all the ways the state just, failed JC. Just like how many red flags were ignored and everything like that. Yeah. Or if they would have like gone one step farther and actually done their due diligence because the neighbors also reported to uh the officer that they believed that kids were living outside and like officers came to check but they only you know stopped at the front door had a conversation with philip and then just left without even checking the backyard Hmm. so like there's a lot that just just like we told you they were living outside did you look outside nope yeah fuck yeah so at least you know 18 years later she is she was found her and her daughters are safe now safe now but let's get to the trial and sentencing Mm -hmm. so nancy and philip both pled guilty to charges of kidnapping and rape philip was sentenced to 431 years and nancy was sentenced to 36 years to life in a statement read by the courtroom jc said to her kidnappers and abusers that she chose not to be here today because i refuse to waste another second of my life in your presence so let's get into jc now life after this tragedy Mm-hmm. Still, though, guys, good for her. Yeah. She, I am so inspired, or not inspired, but so in awe of this woman. Because she rose above this. Like, she wrote her two books. She is coping well. She still is raising her two uh, daughters and mm-hmm. loves them. Um, Just like she became a strong woman through very... Very thick adversity would and be the nicest way of saying that. She kept her sanity. Like, she was there to protect her daughters. And, like, she still made it through this. And she's still fighting. So, it's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, that's... How many do you think would have just given up within the first year? I know. And, like, again, she gave two unmedicated births in a backyard to children and still was okay. To, like, I'm sorry. Giving birth is traumatic like it's both as a teenager both as a teenager 13 and 17 years old or 14 and 17 years old that's insanity but um anyways let's get into life after this tragedy so an investigation was launched into the parole offices parole office in california for failure to monitor philip appropriately in a scathing report more than a dozen opportunities to find JC were missed. The report stated, while it is true that Phillips' California parole was never officially violated, our review shows that Philip committed numerous parole violations and that the department failed to properly supervise Philip and missed numerous opportunities to discover his victims. Opportunities to find JC that were missed include the first big mistake was made by the U.S. Parole Commission, which released Philip from prison January 20th of 1998 when he received a 50-year-old year federal sentence the next failure was early termination of the federal parole the u.s parole commission granted philip early termination of his federal parole on march 9th 1999 basing its decision on his clean record at the time u.s parole agent wrote philip a letter thanking him for his cooperation according to the parole documents released to the media last year the cdcr california department of corrections and rehabilitation failed to adequate adequately classify philip giving 
his history as a violent sexual predator and thus failed to supervise them appropriately. He was classified as low risk and instead of a high risk, which he was. The CDCR mm-hmm. then failed to talk to neighbors or local public safety agencies about Philip thereafterward. Okay. So, already all this is just like the initial missteps yep, the that in- a lot of them have made. Initial Where- missteps, yeah. Because I think, I don't know if, like, state and federal sentences are different, but, like, a th- like federal is, like, across state borders, so, like, it should be with upheld no matter which state he's in. It, it should have been a stricter sentence, and he shouldn't have gotten off as lightly. Uh-huh. And, yeah, how did they not have the previous crimes? They did. They did. But they said his clean record, and he didn't have a clean record. So that was for his during his duration during his parole. Like they didn't find any mishaps, though he did go back to jail oh, for that one okay. year for violating his drug. Uh, mm-hmm. That I mean that violated his parole, so that's not it's not clean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I know, but I think it was like a I don't know a several year gap of a clean quote unquote record. But, again, they, they just failed all over the place. Uh, yeah, apparently. My God. Yeah. So other failures include the failure to check out the presence of a 12-year-old girl during a visit or to act on information. The report clearly showed that Philip had violated in terms of his release. So, again, this was when JC was in the backyard. The neighbors reported it. They failed to follow up. The Contra Costa Sheriff's Office had the opportunity to stop Philip in November of 2006 after... They responded to a 911 call claiming that there were three children living on Phillip's property. A re- representative from the sheriff's office visited the house after the call, met Philip on the front lawn, and determined that there was no threat and left. So, never checked the backyard again. So, twice they didn't check the backyard. Mm-hmm. And he just up and left. And just like, if, he d- if he's the perpetrator, why would he admit to any of that stuff anyway it's just like you you check it out he just smooth talked his way out of i guess him following up or saying Mm -hmm. like hey i have no kids here nothing's a mess the neighbors hate me or whatever but the guy should have that the police officer should have followed up more like even if he's just like begrudgingly doing it he should still do it that's part of it yeah like do your job i'm sorry but do your job Like, if there's a threat in the backyard, check the backyard. The investigation also found frequent gaps in visits from the parole board, some of them lasting nearly a year between face-to-face visits by parole officers to Philip. The suspect was only properly supervised 12 out of the 123 months that they were supposed to supervise him in, a failure rate of about 90%. Due to the failures like the ones listed above, the California state legislator approved a $20 million settlement for J.C. However, the report and J.C.'s experience did lead to a complete reform of the CDCR system. Now monitoring includes polygraph testing, face-to-face evaluations. The CDCR is also adding polygraph testing and, where possible, stringent face-to-face evaluations by mental health therapists who assess whether sex offenders are classified as low-risk or high-risk. Experts are criticized by the CDCR for classifying Philip, who is a convicted sex offender, before he kidnapped Dugard as low risk. So they're getting an expert, they're criticizing past mistakes, and they're trying to up their game. 
essentially just like preventing all of the mistakes that happened in that case. Yep, trying to. Also added was full-time GPS tracking for all sex offenders. Some sex offenders included Philip were once or were once only randomly tracked through GPS devices, so only random intervals of checking in. Now and they that would have that would have prevented that run over to Nevada to grab somebody and bring him back to California. Yep, again, just randomly tracked. Now there are daily tracks of all sex offenders, regardless of their risk level, low or high, and they're carefully and regularly analyzed, the CDCR said in this statement. Immediate response to GPS malfunctions in the past when batteries on GPS devices ran low or sex offenders became invisible on the GPS grid, parole agents were then notified through email alerts. Now humans actively oversee the GPS monitoring centers 24 hours a day. So... I believe they can now communicate through actually the devices around their ankles and say like, hey, this needs to be charged, uh, charge it, or they can go and give them a replacement. Mm-hmm. If something seems amiss, they can be they can contact that sex offender and their agents directly and immediately. Drug testing therapy. The CDCR is also insisting on increased drug testing and regular mental health checks with mental health therapy as conditions of parole for sex offenders who need it. So like Philip, who we know was unstable. Yeah. Yeah. I think the increased drug testing, like I think that was part of the reason why like he just never showed up for a lot of his parole stuff because he'd be on the methamphetamine binges. Well, they never followed up. They never checked in. He didn't violate his parole. They said he didn't violate it. They just never followed up. Oh, my God. But, yeah, more frequent ones would have caused the methamphetamine at least. Yeah. They would have got him to, like, look around of where he's getting that stuff, where he could be hiding it, and then, oh, there's a child back here. Yeah, again, they did sweeps. If they just would have looked in the backyard, they would have saw. But. It's just, oh, my God. Yeah. Disappointing. Very disappointing. J.C. Dugard also sued the federal government for alleging federal parole officials should have revoked the abductor's parole well before he kidnapped her, but also failed to do their jobs. However, this lawsuit was dismissed. The dismissal was upheld by an appellate court in 2016. So they're not taking their blame for their mistakes, and they made a shit ton of mistakes, as described above. They did pay her twenty million for that mistake. That was the state was of California, state not the federal, federal government. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. Yep. Again, state government. She got twenty mil. Federal government. She got nothing. So, kind of moving on to her personal life. From A.E. True Crime Stories, ten years after her rescue, J.C.'s life had changed dramatically. She immediately reunited with her mother, Terry. Robin, fulfilling one of her dreams for the future. JC had written down in 2006 while she was still a captive trying to survive. In her journal, she you know, made dreams for the future list of all the things she wanted to do, all the people she wanted to help. She had like come up with a bunch of these organizations and just had written down dreams that she wanted to do. Sort so, of like a mix between of just like a, uh, what, what is that? Like a bucket a, list. A bucket list, and then, like, there's a different one, like a something board, like a, a, a goals board, a motivation board, something like that, mm-hmm. where it's just, like, 
it's not so much a bucket list. It's more of just like things I want to achieve. Oh, not just yeah. Go and do, but something I I want to get done. Yep. For something, like it's not for me. It's just I feel like this needs to get done. It's not. It's like more of like a selfless bucket list. Yep. Uh, I I think they're called like materialization boards or like. Something like that. It's like it was. All I know is a board. Goals. A, goals a that a you want. Vision board. Vision board. Thank vision you. Vision board. That's what it is. Yep. Um, so she checked off almost all of her other dreams on that list as well. She's seen the pyramids in Belize, ridden a hot air balloon, learned to drive. She swam with dolphins. She's taken a train ride. She learned to sail on an old-fashioned sailing boat. She's gone horseback riding, written a best-selling book, A Stolen Life of Memoir, in 2011. She's also done something she may have never imagined, like start a foundation. She saw Lady Gaga and Beyonce in concert as well. So she started this new life, and she reunited with her family. It has been joyful, but also very difficult. JC and her daughters were traumatized by their captivity, and they required therapy and support to help them acclimate to their new lives. Using a clinical service called Transitioning Families, JC began to build a home for herself and her children away from the rapist who had fathered them, along with his complicit wife who forced the girls to refer to her as mother. A lot of this therapy was built around interacting with horses, giving JC and her daughters a chance to learn how to ride them. Slowly, JC began to move through life milestones that Philip and Nancy had stolen from her and her children. She moved them to their own house, enrolled their daughters in school, and adopted pets that Philip couldn't take away, as he often did to manipulate her during the captivity. JC's sister, Shauna Probin, who is 10 years younger than JC, taught her big sister how to drive, a fact that tickled JC since Shauna was only a baby the last time that she had saw her. JC earned her driver's license within a year of her release and received a gift of a new car from a generous stranger. JC had also gotten involved in helping other survivors and their families. In 2010, JC started the JAYC Foundation to serve families like hers who have experienced severe trauma. JAYC stands for Just Ask Yourself to Care. In 2015, she collaborated with psychologist Rebecca Bailey of Transitioning Families and Abigail Judge of Massachusetts General Hospital on a presentation critiquing the use of the phrase Stockholm Syndrome. This phrase refers to a specific incident in the 1973, and they argue doesn't actually reflect research about how captive people relate to their captors. In presentations at Yale University and Harvard Medical School and in New Orleans, JC and her colleagues argue that the phrase is misleading and hurtful to survivors and suggesting a new phrase, adaption process. In 2016, JC published a second book, Freedom, My Book of First, detailing her life as a free woman. In it, JC describes her everyday triumphs and struggles, like trying to live a private life when there is so much media interest in her. In the public, she's still nervous that people will recognize her face or her name, though some mistake her for a member of the Duggards, the reality TV with all the kids. Yet overall, she's very, very happy with her life and very happy that she and her daughters are finally free. Um, so just kind of going over again, the book she has is Freedom and then A Stolen Life. And she does go on to talk about the 
uh, adaptation process over Stockholm Syndrome. That's something that she argues strongly about because mm. she did not care for her survivors. She just did everything possible to it survive was, and protect her survival. daughters. Yeah, it was a survival tactic. In the Stockholm Syndrome, like where that came from, I actually learned about a little bit recently. And it was, uh, it was like it, a unique circumstance, specifically, where it was just these bank robbers in Stockholm, Sweden. And all the hostages in there were just like, you know what? Yeah, let's join these guys. This is a lot better than what we were going to do anyway. It's just like they empathized with their hostage people. And like that is not a very common occurrence for many, many people. It's not Stockholm Syndrome. It's just like that was a unique situation. It's not the same as being on their side if you're not fighting them yeah. directly. It is waiting for your chance to strike. So, like, just kind of relating to JC's case, like, a lot of people have criticized her in the past. Well, like, why didn't she think about running away when she was, like, working at the company or when she was out with her daughters and everything? And that was because she was so threatened that she thought that harm would come to her and her daughters if she were to escape. Like, she was still just doing everything she could to survive the moment, survive the day, and not anger Philip and Nancy, who still controlled her while she was out doing things. Like, her daughters went to the university. She wasn't allowed to go. It was just her daughters. Mm -hmm. So, again, she had limited freedom, and her, her daughters had limited knowledge of the outside world. Oh, yeah. Like, everything was limited to essentially that screen that she was allowed. And that's it. And it was the TV. Yep. That's all she had from essentially being an 11-year-old. And she only had the fifth grade education at the time, too. Like, she was yeah. not schooled. And she was teaching her daughters what, you know, what she knew. As and best as she could. It's just yeah. like, it's, this is asking a lot of a person, and it's... Again, she was just fighting every day to survive, and I highly recommend her books. Again, they're Freedom and a Stolen Life by J.C. Lee Dugard, um, and they're they are really good books. And if you have time, watch the ABC interview with her. It's done really, really well. Um, she talks mm-hmm. about her way of coping and what, what she, you know, does on a daily basis and how she kind of survived all through this and everything and what kind of got her through her traumatic experience so yeah it is that's a crazy story but like i i wouldn't say you're wrong in saying inspiring it is just like a testament to the possibilities of strength for a human yeah yeah like she's so strong she's so i'm just in awe of this woman and how mm-hmm. how she comes across and like she is an inspiration to others and i just yeah like mm-hmm. i mean i can't even begin to fathom her situation um and everything that she's grown from but she is such a strong and like her quotes and her book books are amazing to read through and um mm-hmm. it's just a hero harrowing tale that she made it through and Again, she yeah. came out of this right, and super strong. She's making a change to make sure that others don't go through the same process yeah. she went. 
and she's yeah. she's trying to make the world a better place. Like she came out fighting, and she's still fighting to change the world, which is I would almost like describe it as she championed that situation. She she definitely is a hero for doing all she did to protect her herself and her daughters and yeah, yeah and for all the change that she's um pursuing to change for like California as well as the federal government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um that is the harrowing tale of JC Lord. Again, check out that ABC documentary that they covered um i believe it's like an hour 20 some minutes there's a couple on there with an updated one from just last year as well as check out our two books i again there's a lot that goes through them but they're definitely worth a read support her and um again she she is an amazing person and she survived hell and came back a swinging so um she's just really an amazing person so that is our case. Mm-hmm. You're right. That one was a doozy. Uh, it, it was a lot. So thank you to our listeners to sticking through it. I mean, her case definitely needs to be heard. And yeah. all the changes that she's implementing is great. And if you guys like that, please, you know, leave us a review. And we'll see you guys next week. Yeah. Hopefully we'll, we'll all be better people by then as well. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Violent Vice Podcast. Cover art is by Colton Griffith. Music by Annabelle Rayback. And research done by Corinne Drybelvis. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Violent Vice Podcast or on Twitter at Violent Vice. That's V-I-L-E-A-N-D-V-I-C-E. No ampersands here. If you want to help support the show, please do so on Patreon at patreon.com backslash Vice, or give us a once-off donation on PayPal with our email, valenvice at gmail.com. Again, that's V-I-L-E-A-N-D-V-I-C-E to keep the spooky stories coming. Thank you.